Hello and welcome to this latest episode of SAPCHAT. I'm your host, Jaron Main. Well, as we rumble on towards the end of 2023, there are still two conversations dominating both national headlines and indeed conversations with clients. And the first is uh, that of AI. It seems to be omniprevalent in any conversation at the moment. The second one is the continued disruption to supply chains. So I'm delighted today to say that I'm joined by John McFall, CEO of Supply Chain Wise. John is a trusted executive and a well-known figure in the tech industry, bringing over two decades of experience in business strategy and sales leadership. Throughout his career, he's worked with prominent names in defense, retail and technology, including the Royal Air Force and Amazon. His latest role with global corporations was to create and then lead the Amazon Web Services supply chain, transportation and logistics business development team, responsible for driving global business sales and business growth across public and private sector markets. By emphasizing the benefits and results of digitalization to help solve customer problems, create new markets and increase revenue, John has recently launched a new company called Supply Chain Wise, which is focused on generative artificial intelligence and machine learning for customers that own or participate in supply chains. So John, welcome to SAPChat. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for agreeing to uh, free your time up to speak to me today. It's great to have you on. Um, It's an absolute pleasure, I wanted to talk. I, th- I said briefly in the introduction that you started off life in the in the RAF uh, and then moved on to Amazon. I, I'm really curious about how that uh, how that move went. You know, your time in the RAF and then the tra- transition set to Amazon. Yeah, it's quite. It is interesting. I mean, having spent 18 years in the Air Force, it, it's definitely um, a moment of uh, serious consideration when you are leaving. In fact, there's a period where you have to hand in your notice effectively to leave the service. Uh, so give indication, um, and it's about 12 months. So you're on this sort of ramp, and on that on that sort of ramp to exit, uh, you know most companies are looking for you to have sort of three to six months notice. So yeah. there's a there's a significant period of time when you can do very little uh, in terms of um, physically applying for jobs. Of course, you can do your networking and you can do um, any additional training points that you feel necessary. So during that period, it's quite a it's quite a sort of you know moment of focus. But I I was approached by Amazon um, during that period and a great recruiter, Kieran Lyons, reached out and um, he asked if I would be interested in Amazon because I had many of the, you know, in theory, many of the credentials that they were looking for. Mm. And of course, it would never, it never crossed my mind. Why would I leave the military and join Amazon? Yeah. So, you know, never, never crossed my mind at all. And I sort of thought, well, you know, the, the recruitment experience, it had been, what, 1995, maybe 1990, yeah, 1995 was the last time I'd been interviewed for a job formally, and it was now 2017. Right. So I thought it was probably worth getting some interview experience, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. So I went I went along anyway, and it was, the you know, the, the most sort of unusual setup of interviews that I've ever been through, but... Ultimately, the actual um, process meant that I got to meet some great people. And what I realized very quickly was that there's a huge number of very competent people with some of the 
coming from some of the best universities in the country um, and globally um, who are working for the business. And then it struck me that, you know, this is probably quite an interesting place to be from a, from that perspective. So I went ahead and, um, you know, went through the interview process, was actually fortunate to be successful. Um, I'm not sure I realized just how fortunate I was um, at that stage. I um, was fortunate to be successful um, and joined the business um, in 2017. A little bit of an overlap with my uh, my exit um, and ultimately uh, started working in the Amazon.com um, side of the business uh, in one of the fulfillment centers. And so that's uh, quite a quite a shift then from from you, for, you know, mo- moving for sort of all that time in in the RAF, moving out into fast paced, you know, challenging organisation like like Amazon. Your background clearly, that you, your skills and your background in the RAF was that always supply chain related uh, logistics, or was that just completely unrelated to your move to to Amazon? It's, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose nearly everything in the military, in one way or another, evolves around logistics in mm. so much as you can't you can't function in any operating environment without having the logistics there um, and for the logistics to be working. But my primary background in the in the in the RAF was part of the Royal Air Force Regiment, and the RAF Regiment has an infantry role um, that is designed to support the air the Air Force um, when deployed. So our duties were force protection, meaning protecting the bases, protecting the people, protecting the assets. Um, that was my primary uh, operating role. But I spent quite a lot of time in large data science type work as well. So from that perspective, right. you know, I was quite I was quite interested in uh, how to apply wider um, experiences. And so you join join Amazon. What 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 what, um, what was your kind of your role or roles while you were there and 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 how did you uh, what did you learn from your time in Amazon? Yeah, I mean, there's that's quite. It's, there's a lot of like anything. One learns different um, different things as you progress through different uh, you know different stages of your um, shock of capture of leaving the military, and also um, as you uh, as you progress through a whole bunch of different roles. So in the very early days. Um, I was the inbound operations manager for a large uh, fulfillment center. And, you know, the very first thing that I learned um, on day one was that there was no there was no status to this sort of civilian rank thing that I've been given. You right. know, so I've been given a title. I have been given, um, you know, a, a, a level within an organization and I've been given you know, a suitable um, uh, remuneration package to match, but none of those things meant that you actually knew what you were doing or that you were going to be respected in any way uh, based on, you know, some random, uh, you know, random accolades awarded to you for an interview process. Um, And instead, you know, it was going to be very much a case of having to, you know, re-win trust um, to build credibility um, from the bottom up uh, and to gain, you know, some, some experience. And that was very hard because, of course, I was thrown in to lead, uh, you know, a very large part of the business. And it's a complicated part of the business in bind operations because there is a significant lack of visibility. There is a significant challenge around uh, labor management and labor planning. Mm. And there is a huge amount of analytics and, you know, all of those things coming at once, you know, a change of a change of uh, company. Um, you know, a change of uh, work environment, um, a change in the sorts of things that you were doing for work, um, a heavy reliance upon analytics, um, and a heavy reliance upon me as a leader uh, to learn from those around me. Um, you know, it was a huge uh, uphill challenge. Mm. 
And it took the best part of about six months um, to feel somewhat comfortable, but yet still not particularly credible and or um, confident in your ability to execute. And it took about you know a total of 12 months to feel a little bit more um, stable and a little bit more on top of the, the sort of the key aspects of Amazon. And even then, you're still only scratching at the surface because you're working in one small part um, of, the, of the business and working on one small wheel. But I was very lucky because at about that time, when, when I was just feeling like I, I understood inbound operations, um, my uh, leader at the time, a guy called Lee Shepard, who uh, you know is now a director at Amazon Air, um, reached out to see if I would go across to uh, look after a, another part of the business, which was a very small building that he had inherited in the neighbouring um, city. And that little building became um, EUKA. And over time, we, we evolved it into a small and light distribution capability. What was particularly interesting with that was that it was actually a very effective operation, even though at the time it was seen as being, you know, a sidebar issue. It was very effective at what it did. So effective was it that we were asked to scale from one building to 65 buildings across the whole of EMEA. And that was in line with a larger program that was going on in the in the US to scale small and light. Now, what that immediately exposed me to was um, Amazon's ability to move at speed and tempo. It exposed me to all of the planning conditions and requirements for opening new buildings globally. It exposed me to the issues around, you know, political acceptance of new buildings being open, planning permissions, um, you know, the importance of property in a supply chain topology planning uh, process. Uh, the you know, even simple things like making sure you have the right uh, meaning, uh, clearly defined uh, geographical location and postcode of your facility, and how critical something as trivial as that is uh, in your planning uh, systems, and making sure that all of those uh, I's are dotted and T's are crossed uh, is tough when you're working at that sort of scale. Uh, by the way, and also still running the operation because we didn't have a specialist team um, that was coming in to run any of this project. So it was run the project, run the operation, um, and expand. So from that perspective, it was exciting. We scale, we hire our own people, we trained our own managers, uh, you know, and we deployed our own buildings. So I did that for a while. That was great fun. Um, and then following that, I moved to uh, AWS, uh, which is where the story sort of picks up from a Amazon and SAP perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and and you were introduced to me by, uh, I guess, a friend of the show, Jonathan Lake, who was clearly working at Amazon. Uh, web services uh, at the time in their SAP team. I, I, I'm interested uh, before we go into kind of more about AI and, and supply chain. Uh, you know, clearly, as I said in the intro, you've now left Amazon and uh, set up your own business, supply chain wise. So I'm interested in that that decision um, to 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 move forward. Was that kind of driven by the work that you did after the move into AWS? Yeah, so when I came across, I mean, I've always wanted to go and work in AWS because I wanted to learn more about cloud technology, cloud computing, and how it was going to you know, help um, industry and businesses. 
and had spent quite a few times, you know, um, looking predominantly at the public sector aspects of um, AWS, believing that my experience in the in the in the public sector, my experience with Amazon, would bring together, uh, you know, a credible story. Mm. But it wasn't to be initially. So I joined um, AWS as the culture capability and capacity lead for EMEA. And I came across uh, to support the uh, the professional services teams and right. how they would hire people, develop people, sustain culture, have the right leadership um, aspects in place, and so forth. And you know, at the time, the business was scaling very quickly. There was a whole bunch of new leaders coming on board. They, uh, you know, those new leaders didn't understand the basics around how Amazon hires, uh, didn't understand the basics around Amazon culture. Um, so therefore, there was lots of requirements to try to help reinforce some of those key mechanisms that Amazon um, has. And Amazon operations, uh, you know, it is very much seen as being a you know, a, a good example of that mm. culture in action. And and, and it is you know, today, the, the AWS sort of adoption of Amazon culture, um, it is a little bit nuanced um, from what you see in Amazon operations. But, you know, when I was there, I kept getting asked, in AWS that is, I kept getting asked, John, how does Amazon do, insert whatever the question was, and how does Amazon act with, so I was being brought out in front of customers, uh, particularly defense and defense-related customers, um, to talk through those aspects. And that then, at some point, made me realize that AWS didn't have a supply chain transportation and logistics focus at all, which was very old given um, you know its culture and given you know the, the sort of the premise of um, yeah. of of what AWS was originally built for. Um, so we created, or I created more accurately, a supply chain transportation and logistics uh, team, sort of like with me. Then we very quickly hired two more people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that team scaled over the next few years to 45 people globally. And the the team built up a very substantial um book of work we built up you know a huge number of you know some of the world's best businesses that we were working with um, and we were bringing aws services and capabilities to bear uh, for those customers likewise sap um and i should say to people you know we are we are an sap partner supply chain wise you know so sap was an area where many companies you know feel very comfortable having a, an organization at the scale of sap looking after their enterprise uh, records mm-hmm. and they feel very comfortable having an organization with the credibility of sap um being responsible for you know the, the those things that will be subject to audit etc so you know it, it became clear that we needed to find a way of being able to work alongside the sap um uh, teams and the sap customers uh, to be able to offer uh, you know additional value and I, and I mean additional value because we know that sap is faster cheaper and more secure on aws those things are just a given. Mm. The real, but customers don't move to a new service provider based on TCO alone. Mm. You know, there there has to be a a reason, and the reason and the main call out for that is because maybe that sounds kind of intuitive for some of the observers of this show. Um, again, but you know, the truth is, if you go and ask a customer, would you like to spend X number of million to move from a on-premise SAP deployment to an AWS SAP deployment? You know, the, the customer won't necessarily understand the difference between the two. Yeah. Making a financial argument sounds okay, but there's going to be upheaval and there's going to be change. There's going to be cultural realignment. There's going to be all of these other investments that a company has to make in order to invest into the cloud. And all of those things require a but why yeah. um, solution and answer. And 
from my perspective, uh, supply chain is one of those things that you can go and touch the cloud. You can go and physically stand in your cloud environment. You can go and physically see components. And what I mean by that is just that if you get an inventory planning situation wrong, you can go and stand and see empty shelves. Yeah. You know, if you get your warehouse management systems um, incorrectly aligned and adjusted, then for sure you can watch the chaos unfold around you. And it's that it's that reality of the cloud being used in the physical domain that excited me and that made me quite motivated to uh, create the team in the first place because it's 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 something that's real. So then when you combine that tangible effect alongside a TCU and infrastructure argument then I think you create a very compelling use case for the customer to want to take that leap with you into the cloud. And it, it's it's hard, right? Because in the end, all customers or any customer, maybe there's not all, but most customers should recognize that they're going to the cloud. It's just a matter of time. Mm. And it's just a matter of time means that there's a, there's a deadline out there somewhere and you either know when that deadline is or it's going to come and hit you hard um, in the near future. So when you put these milestones out for customers and you show the inevitability of the journey um, that they're on and the inevitability of the move to the cloud, then the trick then becomes, do we wait until it happens to us and we're forced or do we take our chances early and call it forward? And if we're going to call it forward and do it earlier, then what business um, effects can I have to offset any um, cost of migration? And that's really where whenever we're working with SAP, we were able to say, you know, let's look at an inventory optimization um, um, movement, or let's look at a uh, fleet management capability, or let's optimize uh, MRO for, for machines alongside an SAP deployment and migration. So that way the customer gets two things, um, you know, for the same for the same buck. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think for a long time, a lot of SAP customers were looking at the whole move to S4HANA and thinking this is going to cost a lot of money, it's going to be a lot of disruption, where's the value? And there has to be something on the back of that that builds the business case. And supply chains are a fascinating area. And as you rightly point out, done well, uh, everything just happens. Done uh, badly, uh, the whole thing grinds to a halt. Um, I've seen, and in my conversations with clients, um, an exponential increase in focus around supply chain. Um, and it feels like it was driven from COVID and then the situation in Ukraine um, driving that. Do you think that's correct or do you think this was inevitable anyway? Yeah, it's an interesting piece, isn't it? It's a bit of, um, you know, a causation uh, argument, I suppose. Mm. I mean, for many, for many organisations, let's sort of take a step back. For many organisations, they either have or participate in a supply chain. And depending upon the degree of separation between the organization and its supply chain, it will impact the nature of the individuals that they employ to manage um, and coordinate the activity. So in some organizations, supply chain is a, you know, seen as a cross-cutting um, issue and people who are leading it from the very top may or may not have a very significant supply chain background. Mm. And likewise, you know, other organizations will have internal logistics um, teams who have always done it that way and, you know, have not had the experience or opportunity to see what is best practice across the wider environment. So when COVID strikes, 
or any other supply chain shock, but COVID is something that brought it to the dinner table for many. Mm-hmm. When COVID strikes, board, boardroom leaders suddenly had to learn what it was to have a supply chain and their dependency upon it. And the fact that, yes, you can try to outsource it, but in the end, you can't abdicate responsibility for your supply chain. If you do, you will feel. Mm. So, therefore, there was a real focus on trying to understand, I think that's the first aspect, trying to understand what is our supply chain, then trying to understand what risks there were associated with the supply chain. And that confused people very quickly because there was a real expectation that you could simply say, who are my M4 suppliers? And to be told who they all were, where they were all located and what their current challenges were. Mm. And Mm. it was tough because most people couldn't get by their tier one suppliers. And then you have other challenges with the regulatory changes that are taking place. As I said before, we get into any, you know, wars. You know, COVID, COVID and wars are, you know, yes, strategically important, but they are but um, but moments in a, on a historical timeline. The, the regulatory changes are coming thick and fast, which means that they are systemic changes to our supply chains need to be operative, enduring changes. So when you look at things like the reduction of plastics, or you look at things like the the, the desire and or the, the legal and moral requirements to remove um, modern slavery from your supply chain, or you look at challenges around the application of uh, tariffs against uh, and sanctions um, on countries and the changes to the trade relationships that are ever occurring, and uh, changes to things like um, uh, electronic ways of working. Yeah. All of these things are coming down the pipeline or, or indeed are in action today. And companies that are not able to adequately navigate all of these, first of all, pay more than they should. And secondly, could find themselves being subject to very substantial um, reputational and financial um, penalties um, if they are not able to address those issues. And, that, and I haven't even mentioned the big sustainability board. Because in the end, you know, your your supply chain, whichever way you want to look at it, accounts for a significant part of your sustainability challenge. And the more you look into that, the harder it becomes. And another area, if I can just sort of take one other foray, is that some of the changes that we see occurring in the in the sort of the world order, as it were. It, it, it sees organizations, governments and others seeking to reshore, nearshore, friendly shore, whatever phrase you wish to use, ally shore, mm. um, production uh, and capability. And, and all of these things are quite interesting because we have to look again, and again, uh, and your logistics experts are very analytical, but we have to look again at what is it that we're using to make the judgments as to where production should occur. You know, so for instance, we had a you know a great conversation at a at an event in uh, Berlin just the other week, and there we were talking about the unit of labor that is inside a sea container. Meaning, how many minutes of labor does it take to build a washing machine, and how many washing machines can you put in the sea container? Distinct from how many minutes of labor does it take to build an iPhone, and how many iPhones can you put in a sea container? And when you reflect upon metrics like that, it helps you think differently about the actual savings that you are creating when you think about offshoring your production of things like washing machines in particular. And that thought process, I don't believe, has been adequately captured when making calculations as to where is the right location to invest for manufacturing. 
The other thing that was critical in this sort of supply chain debate is that companies are now rapidly becoming constrained. So they want to grow, but yet there's no warehousing available. They want to invest in the latest infrastructure to charge their vehicles, but yet nation states are increasingly denying companies access to the national grids. You know, look at Holland, you can't open a new warehouse in Holland and connect it to the national grid. If you look across um, the topology, therefore, when you're sitting as a business, one of the last things that people are thinking about when they're talking about their supply chain and logistics planning is which buildings do I need? And where do those buildings need to be? What is the available labour? What is the cost of that labour? What is the compensation for labour in any given area? And what is the five-year, because these buildings are 10-year-plus investments, what does the five-year look like for other people opening other warehouses right next to me? Um, Because when they do, further compensation will ensue. And we see that in Poland, and you see that across the whole of the uh, Eastern European um, countries where car manufacturers in particular are making very substantial investments. Um, in, in infrastructure um, along that Black Sea, Adriatic coast um, in area. So I was going to ask you about the lack of visibility in supply chain, but actually the lack of visibility isn't just about, typically customers I speak to are talking about visibility of their, you know, their top three, four suppliers, uh, but actually it goes far, far deeper than that. In And, and some of the things you've just spoken about, I've, I've never heard at all, you know, organizations being denied access to national grid for example that's the first the first time i've ever heard that in a conversation which is quite surprising and alarming for an organization in order to get the planning absolutely uh, right uh, and, and making the right decisions from the get-go yeah and you know I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not here to plug any particular organisation, um, mm-hmm. but I just want to, mm-hmm. I just want to call out to people listening, you know, that property, it, it is a very specialist um, area and it is a long term investment. And those things go without saying, but I'm always surprised at just how rapidly people want to make decisions in, in that space, despite what I've just said. And there are specialist organizations, one of which would be CBRE, but there are specialist organizations there um, that can help in those sorts of very challenging and difficult decisions. And even if it's um, shortlisting, you know, available locations or shortlisting land, I mean, you know, let's let's even just look at the availability of land. You know, you can't, in many jurisdictions, mm. you can't buy sufficient land even for your warehouse. So mm. now you're in Brownfield mm. and Brownfield is at a premium. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, so yeah, the point is that needs to be factored into any planning and your property portfolio. I mean, take a different angle on property, even if you don't want to expand. How many organizations know what their current property laydown is in from a supply chain perspective, meaning how many uh, square meters um, of space that they've got, where is it located, what are the what are the uh, topology aspects of distribution, what are the routes to market from that particular location, and in addition to that, which sites are you leasing, who are you leasing them from, when are the leases up for renewal, um, and what are the uh, benefits of using those sites for distribution. All of those things are critical to to understand and have a good idea on, because in the end, they will drive more than virtually anything else, the supply chain topology decisions that you have to make. In other words, if there are no buildings available in Munich, you're not opening a facility in Munich, even if you desire to do so. 
And so from a from a, an IT perspective, we're talking about speed and agility. And indeed, you talked about Amazon, you know, in your experience in, in rapid deployment, rapid growth. But you clearly need partners to, to look at some of the more physical aspects of, of this alongside that. One of the things uh, I wanted to, to, to get right into was, and I said in the intro that um, the two conversations that typically come up, and it might just be the company I keep, uh-huh. keep John, but um, in, in it is, is, is that of supply chain and that of AI. Um, and it's everywhere in the press at the moment, you know, driven on the back of chat GPT. And, and, but how are you working with your clients in adopting AI into the supply chain? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is everywhere. It's the new little black dress that everybody must have. Um, and I get it, you know, especially when people start talking about generative AI, it can feel like you're just on the bandwagon and you're, you know, you're, 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 you're marketing rather than um, solvent. Um, AI will, has and will continue to play um, a role within supply chain around things that are maybe not necessarily that sexy. So labor planning, demand optimization, inventory optimization, stock counting, stock record recording, uh, network topology, writing. So it, it has and will continue to play a key role in all in all of those areas. And organizations that are not leveraging um, these advanced tools for those sorts of capabilities um, are failing. And you know, and not and they're not necessarily failing as in the business is failing, but they are failing to actually realize the full potential. Um, of what they have and you know there are very few organizations uh, that wouldn't benefit from some kind of increased statistical um, analysis of their environment not to not to um, miss the sort of AI ML component Mm. the other aspect of this is that with advances in um, technologies like computer vision combined with AI there are very inexpensive ways of addressing some of the uh, mandrolic processes that are being done um, in warehouses, factories, and shops up and down the length and breadth of any country you seek to go to. And these advances in technology um, enable us to be able to optimize the, uh, the the deployment in the stores. That's not to say that we build use cases on you know job reduction, and quite the opposite. We build use cases for job um, creation um, and and job reallocation Hmm. because we don't want people just simply doing mandrolic tasks when there is an available solution um, that can support them. The other aspect of the sort of more degenerative AI, the biggest difference here being is that it's able to create novel content. So if we reflect upon that just for one second before we we jump into it. So with machine learning, we can do, you know, uh, um, a high level of analysis of things like your your labor planning, your shift rostering, your production planning, et cetera. With your artificial intelligence, which is where we're able to uh, take maybe seemingly unconnected points or data and to be able to learn um, from it. So we're trying to replicate the human mind in one way or another with a neural network. We're able to bring together some really interesting uh, observations around, you know, whether whether it be combining your labor plan with your uh, inbound volume flows, or whether it be looking at your uh, trucks and the impact of weather, traffic, etc., on your distribution. With generative AI, what we're doing is creating new content. 
and a large amount of that new content we're seeing in things like the customer um, customer service market. So we're seeing support to telemarketers. We're seeing support to customer service um, handlers. You know, where's we stuff from a supply chain perspective? Um, you know, and the ability to be able to answer those. The other thing that, that I'm seeing um, within that space is a real desire to create orchestration. And this is where supply chain wise is particularly focused. Because what we see is we see a whole bunch of best of breed applications and capabilities that companies have, are looking to invest in, or are about to purchase. Um, but yet they have no simple mechanism to be able to interrogate all of these tools to get the answers that they require instead of logging into each of the individual tools to pull the answers out. So from that perspective, we seek to use advanced orchestration capabilities to be able to go and evaluate all of the data across multiple different um, scenes and to bring it together to be able to answer questions that may be posed in plain English. Why do I have an OTIF problem um, in my Midlands um, distribution? Mm. You know, I don't I don't want just basic data. I want to ask that question and I want the system to bring back relevant information. Now there is a so what. Much has been made of ChatGPT and the open AI um, related uh, capabilities. And what we need to recognize is that those are open, meaning you're sending your information from your customer, your company's environment to an external source. Mm. That external, that external source is then using that information and applying its model and algorithms to provide you with an answer. To put it differently, it means that you're sending potentially sensitive uh, corp corporate information into an external environment. So for, for many, there are ways of handling this, by the way, I'll talk about one in a second, but for many that will be challenging and therefore the ability to deploy models that maybe aren't able to tell you, you know, how many presidents of the United States like milk in their tea, mm -hmm. but instead are able to answer good questions around inventory optimization, et cetera, means that you can have a much smaller and much less expensive model deployed in your environment. But for small companies that still want to be able to make use of these multi, you know, million dollar uh, models, then there are ways and means of not anonymizing your data so that the what you're sending out is irrelevant or hard to interpret. So rather than saying, you know, product name, product type, you might choose to use code names for individual products, red, red, white, blue, right. instead of saying right. 25 files and SKU, 45 files and SKU, 600 SKU, you might choose to use, you know, less, uh, less relevant information like five, three, two, mm -hmm. because you can still get a weighted outcome, which means that you can still get back, you know, high, high quality analysis of the information, but you just have to apply effectively, um, you know, a, a, a coded system um, to um, analyze your data when it goes across to the um, uh, to these open information sources. So yeah, so don't don't underestimate, um, you know, the, the sort of the security um, challenges with open um, AI related tooling. Um, but do recognize that there are ways of using it if you can't afford to do this to do that tooling on your own environment. But if you can, then you should seek to create your own. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to build it from scratch, by the way, but you should seek to create your own um, um, generative AI capabilities. Yeah, and I, I was going to brush on that because um, at the moment, you know, a few years ago, there was a, and still is largely a cloud war out there with, with all the hyperscalers, you know, making a play for customers to move onto their platforms. 
So now you've got SAP themselves saying to SAP, their customers, look, you know, we've got our own AI suite of products, our own AI engine. Uh, it's all in combined, uh, integrated, and that go, goes back to the kind of original premise of ERP in itself, one, one integrated suite of products. You've got the hyperscalers now turning around like Amazon, like Microsoft saying, yeah, but it's journey in the cloud now. We've got AI tools and, you know, if you put your SAP environment onto our platform, then you can make use of those tools. So really, I'm seeing clients getting a little bit confused as to what do they do? You know, what is the best route for them? I guess there's no easy answer, but you brushed on that in terms of the orchestration of that. Yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of there's no easy answer. Um, well, we we need to reflect upon the way people use the term cloud, and we have this notion of a private cloud and a public cloud. And please don't ex don't don't think that public cloud means that somehow it's an insecure you know, wild west environment that, that these are just two very, dis, very uh, technical distinctions between two different types of environment. So in the private cloud environment, what you have is you will have providers that will create, you know, their own data center. They will deploy their own tin, um, meaning servers and that sort of thing um, into, into these data centers, which they will then run and offer a cloud service. And it could be exclusive, private cloud exclusive to to a particular company, um, or it could be an uh, you know a, a, an open relationship with multiple other companies leveraging the data centers. There's a big difference between that and what a hyperscaler is doing. So whether we look at uh, Microsoft or AWS as the two sort of you know larger providers, um, AWS being you know not only bigger than Microsoft but substantially bigger than Microsoft. Those providers have data centers that are bigger than, you know, horse cards in London, um, many, many, many times bigger. Um, and all of those have got multiple sources of power, multiple sources of connection. The power has to come from two different um, power has, you know, uh, power stations. It can't just come from, you know, the, the, the grid, as it were. So these are very substantial investments. Um, AWS has actually led its own cable um, cables under the ocean to connect all of his various data centers. And what is more, looking for that continuous failover, many of the data centers are now also fitted with ground station, which is a direct link to space. And with the launch of Kyber, uh, Kyber coming, which is 3,600 and something satellites in the very near future, you will see the low, low Earth orbit uh, internet being broadband being provided uh, globally, more or less. There's some exceptions into reach, but that's more physics than it is um, uh, uh, commitment from the business. So the, the, the truth then is, is that there is a fundamental difference between those sorts of um, deployments. And I think that's where companies sometimes will intentionally mask what it is that they're doing behind the term cloud. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is still a very limited uh, understanding in the boardroom as to what cloud is and what it means and what the technology is doing and how the technology is changing. Um, and until boards, you know, become smarter in this space and take more time to learn about what the technology is and how the technology functions, then people will be able to go out and continue to position what 
at face value sounds like the same proposition when it is fundamentally different. John, it's been fascinating speaking to you, I'm conscious of time, but in terms of a kind of, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give to your customers or to anyone listening who is struggling with a supply chain and they realise there's a problem and they realise they've got to do something about it, but they don't know where to start? Yeah, I mean, several, several, several things come to mind. First of all, it's great that people recognize that there are a problem, but recognize also that that problem that you're seeing or the, the sense that you're that you're feeling is probably a symptom of something that is a root cause issue in your supply chain. Mm. Uh, you know, so you're, you could even be masking all sorts of issues by having too much inventory. Um, and once you start digging into it, you know, you start to realize just how challenging it's going to be. So that's what that's one. It's good that you find a symptom of something, but don't think that's your problem. The next is that when it comes to addressing the issues that you have, whatever you do, you're going to be wrong. And what I mean by that is, is that if you look at five years time from now, the chances of you being able to accurately predict what the state of your business is going to be and what your customer demand is likely to be mm. uh, and what the mm. regulatory environment, et cetera, is going to be, I would suggest is very low. So if we if we acknowledge that whatever our predictions are for the future are going to be wrong, what that means is that we whatever solutions we put in place can't be so rigid and so fixed that when we get to that place where we need to pivot, that we can't change. Right. So therefore, from the outset, when it comes to how do we start, we start in the way, the usual ways of any consulting capability, use case identification. What are the business challenges that you face? That doesn't mean I have an inventory problem. I want to reduce my cost of goods sold. I want to increase my customer experience. I want to, whatever, these are the things that we want. I want to increase fixed asset utilization. What are the big drivers that you want to achieve in your business? Right. Then what are the, what are the subcomponents of each of those? And identify one of them. And with the one that you identify, address it. And it could be, for instance, if we're looking at SAP, that we've deployed an SAP 4 module, or SAP 4 HANA, into AWS or another hyperscaler. Having done so, we now identify that we have a warehousing issue. Well, we need to do a runoff with the SAP warehouse management system and any other warehouse management systems that operates on the hyperscaler. Because what we want to do is to select the best tool for the job. And then we want to move on to the next issue, TMS, OMS, fleet management, inventory audit, just one after the other after the other, um, and just go after them. And when you get used to doing this, you can start working concurrently and you can start addressing things very quickly. The other thing I would say, and this is a final comment, um, there is a rule for consulting in supply chain, and it's not necessarily helping you with the day-to-day -day tasks that you're doing. That's something that you will be an expert in. The role of the consulting can be to look just one step around the corner for you and address what's coming, because that's something that most people in the operating space can't do. The age-old British expression of not being able to see the, the wood for the trees yeah. um, comes to mind when it comes to how do you define a path through this challenge in supply chain. It's a bit like Donald Rumsfeld, wasn't it? The known knowns and the unknown unknowns. Um, I'd like to... Thank you so much for your time. It's been really insightful, fascinating background uh, in your personal life and your career. 
uh, and uh, and also really insightful uh, conversation today. Um, if listeners want to get in contact, where can they where can they find you and get in contact with you? Sure. I mean, uh, there aren't many um, John McFalls, um, but um, I'm the John McFall that works at supplychainwise.com um, if you want to find us on um, LinkedIn and, and or the website. Wonderful. So, John, thank you very much for your time. And um, listeners, uh, I'd just like you to remember to like and subscribe to this podcast because it does help others find us more easily. So thank you very much, John. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Pleasure.